You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. In just a few moments, we're going to stand together and read from the 37th Psalm. We're thinking together about how your earthly destiny affects, or how your eternal destiny affects your earthly behavior. How your eternal destiny, where you're going, affects your earthly behavior, what you're doing. Now, let me remind you that there are a lot of people who have this misconception that there is no such thing as eternal security. That is, they do not believe that when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you have a brand new life which you can never lose. As a matter of fact, they go through life wondering, what, what would happen? Uh, what would I have to do to lose my salvation? And they're never really sure whether it's two bad habits or three bad habits or four bad habits or six sins or 60 sins or 600 sins, but they will tell you adamantly, now look, you, you cannot believe that once you become a Christian, you're always a Christian. You're always a child of God because if that were the case, you wouldn't behave right. And of course, their logic, which is faulty logic, goes something like this. You've got to have the fear of falling and losing salvation in order to be motivated to behave like a person ought to be behave. Now, there's no shred of evidence in the Scripture, certainly nothing our Lord said, certainly nothing you would read in all the New Testament or in all of the Old Testament that would give you the slightest indication that the life that God gives you when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior is anything less than eternal life. The word that is used to describe that life is eternal life, everlasting life. And so I want to remind you that when you receive Christ as your Savior, you are eternally secure. One of the uh, reasons I think the Lord, for instance, told us what we often call the parable of the prodigal son was to remind us that that young man was the son of his father, even though he didn't always behave correctly. He ran away from home, his geography changed, his morals changed, his companions changed, his financial situation changed. But even when he was away from home, he remembered that he had a home. He said, in my father's home, there is bread and enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. This I will do. I'll arise and go home, and I will say to my father, as a matter of fact, he thought, well, maybe I'll have to go back and be a slave. But you remember, his father ran to him and embraced him and welcomed him home. And he got out this little speech, and he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He started to say, so make me a servant. But his father would not allow him to complete that little speech. And you remember what he, what he did. They had a party that night and welcomed him. He said, he's, he's like a lost son who's come home. And so when you receive Christ as your Savior, it doesn't mean that you are going to live a perfect life. It doesn't mean that you will never commit a sin. It does mean that God will deal with you as a loving father. He will discipline you. He will take delight in you. He will bless you on occasion. He will treat you as a loving father would treat any son. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines every son whom he receives. And so when you receive Christ, that is a permanent transaction. Don't ever let anybody tell you that that can be taken away from you. Now, the 37th Psalm reminds us, however, 
that when you receive Christ, something else happens, and that is that your behavior changes. That's right, your behavior changes. The Bible says, old things pass away, all things become new. Now, every once in a while, someone will say to me, Brother Tom, I'm not ready to become a Christian yet because I don't think I can behave like a Christian. And when I, when I get down, when I give up this and that habit and stop, stop doing this, stop running around, stop drinking or smoking or whatever it is, whatever they've got in their mind that Christians do, when I stop doing all those things, then I'll become a Christian. Well, I've got news for them. They've got the cart before the horse. That's like trying to get well before you take the medicine. You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then Christ within you begins to empower you to live the kind of life that a Christian ought to live. And that's so very important to realize. First, you receive Christ, just simply. Lord, I repent of my sin, and I trust in you as my Savior and my Lord. It's that simple. I'm repenting, I'm turning from my sin, and I'm receiving you by faith as my Savior. Then, Lord, to whatever extent, you will empower me. You'll make it possible for me to live the life that a Christian ought to live. Dear God, I give you that freedom because I'm yours. I'm giving my life totally to you. So change me however you want. But I'll tell you this, God, you'll have to do the changing because it's not within me. I've tried changing. So I'm trusting you to bring the changes about in my life. I heard a man say, well, well what about all those things that I want to do? And his friend said, when Jesus comes into your heart, you'll be surprised at how rapidly he will change your wanter. And that's what happens when Christ comes into your heart. He begins changing your life. So it will make a difference in your behavior. Now, the 37th Psalm tells us about that. In verses 18 and 20, we see the comparison between a person who is righteous and a person who is wicked, a person who knows Christ, a person who doesn't. And, of course, in verse 18, we're told that the Lord knows the days of upright. Their inheritance shall be forever. Heaven is their eternal home. That's well they'll spend there forever with God. What about the wicked? The wicked will perish. These are people who reject Jesus. The enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume. Into smoke they shall consume away. Then he begins telling us the kinds of differences knowing Jesus will make in your life. So stand with me, and I want to read these verses to you. I'm going to begin with verse 18 again. And let's look at these verses. The Lord knows the days of the upright. Their inheritance shall be forever. Here's one of the differences. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time and the days of famine. They shall be satisfied. And so he says, here's one difference I will make. I will enable you to conquer your fears. I will enable you to conquer your fears. Whether it's your fear about an evil time, what's going to happen in the future, or whether it's your fear that something there'll be a need arise in your life physically. He said, the days of famine. Well, I'm going to allow you to conquer your fears. I'll give you these two promises. You won't be ashamed in the evil time, and you will be satisfied in the days of famine. And then he says, not only will I show you how to conquer your fears, he says, I'll give you a caution about your finances. You'll be cautious about your finances. Look at verse 21. The wicked borrows and pays not again, but the righteous shows mercy and gives, for such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. So he says it'll make a difference in the way you handle your material resources. All of a sudden, you have a new Lord. It's Jesus. And you realize that Jesus has made you an overseer of all these material resources that he's given you. And it's, they're not just yours, they're his. 
and you are the overseer. You're the steward is the word for that. And so the man who doesn't know Jesus, he's like a guy who borrows and doesn't pay again. Well, I mean, he says, this is all mine. I'm going to get all I can. But what about the man who knows Jesus? Why, he's righteous. The righteous shows mercy and gives, and such as are blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him will be cut off. Now look at verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I've been young, I'm now old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore, for the Lord loves judgment and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. And Father, I pray in these next few moments that you would give me the power of your Holy Spirit to preach this message, to share these principles in such a fashion that you will use your word to touch the hearts of every one of us here. Lord, it has to be a work of your Holy Spirit. It cannot be by the words of mere man. And so, Father, I pray that your word would speak to our heart, your spirit would do his work in our lives, and you'll show us the difference it makes when you come in and take over, when Jesus is our Savior and the Lord of our life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what have we said about this psalm? This whole Psalm 37 shows you how to live a positive life in a negative world. And of course, all the way through this psalm, we see the comparisons between the positive and the negative, the righteous and the wicked, the upright and the evil. And so we see how you can live a positive life in a world which is so very, very negative. Now, we have known the importance of establishing the fact that you're going to be a person who's given your life to Christ. You ought to establish your eternal destiny. I wonder if it could be said of you tonight, if we went down the roads, if I just start over here, and started going down the rows and asked you to just speak your name into a microphone and ask you this question. Have you settled your eternal destiny? Do you know where you're going to be spending your forever? For sure. What would you say tonight? If I just came right down and put that microphone right in your mouth, what would you say? What would be the truth tonight about your relationship with God? Could you say, I know that I've repented of my sins and trusted in Jesus. I can go back to the time I did that. I may not remember everything about it, but I remember enough to know that one day I changed from death to life. I was on my way to hell. Now I'm on my way to heaven. I was a, a person separated from God. Now Jesus is alive in my heart. Would you say that? If I came right back there to where you were, put that microphone right in your mouth, could you say, my eternal destiny is settled? Now, if you have never received Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. Your eternal destiny is also settled, but it's not settled in a way that you want it to be settled because, you see, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. So you are on your way to hell. You're on your way to being separated from God forever. The only choice you have is the choice to receive Jesus. Have you established? Have you settled your eternal destiny? If you have, we've already seen that it'll make a difference in your life. 
God has already shown you how to conquer your fears. He has already given you a caution about your finances. You do your money thing differently because you're a Christian than you would if you were not a Christian. Because as a Christian, you see what we read a few moments ago, that you are a steward of God. All right, let's look at some other differences that Jesus will make in your life. How your eternal destination will affect your earthly behavior. You conquer your fears. You have cautions about your finances. All right, here's a third thing. You have confidence for the future. You have confidence for the future. Look with me, if you will, please, at verses 23 and 24. Here he says, the steps of a good man. Now, some of you in your Bible, you have the word good, that adjective there. You have it italicized because it's not a word that is in the original language. The original language has a word that means a warrior or a strong man, but it's referring to someone who's righteous. And so he says, the steps of a good man are ordered, and that word ordered means established. They are established by the Lord, and he, that is this good man, delights in his way. He enjoys his journey. As a matter of fact, look at verse 24. Though he fall, he has this confidence, he shall not be utterly cast down. Why? For the Lord upholds him with his hand. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that when a man gives his heart to Jesus, it affects his plans for the future. He begins to plan with confidence. Instead of saying, well, I better not do this because, you know, some great tragedy may occur here and I better not try that. I might lose my job if I do that. And I better not do this because, I mean, after all, I might lose my security over here. I'm not saying that he is a man who has reckless abandon, but I am saying that he begins to plan his future with confidence. As a matter of fact, he begins to think big. He begins to plan big. Now, why is that so? Because he knows that there is something about being right with God that enables you to plan big and to succeed in your plans. And notice what he says, the steps of a good man. Now, not just any man, not the man who goes out and lives like the devil, not the man who's living in violation of the principles of God, not the man who's ignoring the Word of God, not the man who ignores prayer, not the man who ignores church, not the man who ignores all that God says that a believer in Christ ought to do, not that man. But the steps of a man who is strong in his faith, who knows Christ and is serving Christ, that man's steps, first of all, he says here, are ordered, that is, they are established by the Lord. And because they are established by the Lord, the man delights or he enjoys the journey. He enjoys life. He's not timid when it comes to making his plans. Ladies said to me one time as we were discussing uh, their future, she said, Brother Tom, I wish you would have a talk with my husband. I always am a little bit leery when some lady says that. I want you to have a talk with my husband. And I said, well, why don't you all, maybe I come sit down and talk with both of you. She said, well, let, let me just tell you, before you do that, let me tell you what my concerns are. She said, my husband uh, has become afraid of the future. She said, there was a time right after we first got married when we had such wonderful dreams, we had such great visions and ambitions and plans. And she said, we were 
we were in church and, and the, the people that we had as our close friends loved God and served God and they challenged us. And she said, Brother Tom, she said, we, we thought, you know, anything was possible. She said, we considered even at one time, although he was in a business that was not a church-related business, we even considered going to the mission field. And she said, we raised all kinds of objections and our friends and parents did, but we just laughed at them because we saw that with God, all things are possible. And she said, we just made big plans. But she said, over the years, not only have... Um, we quit reading the Bible and praying and being involved in church and surrounding ourselves with Christian friends as we used to. So as a matter of fact, uh, we, we, we spend a whole lot more time in front of the TV than we do in church and in the Word of God. And she said, our mind's not on the things of the Lord. She said, my husband will be the first to tell you that, that the church is not a priority in his life. But she says, the thing that's happened is this. He has lost his ambition. He's lost his dream. He's lost his vision. And then here's what she said. She said, preacher, she said, my husband lives like a man who's running scared. Isn't that interesting? A man who's running scared. You know what happened? He'd gotten in a position of life where he couldn't claim this promise. The steps of a man who's right with God, they're established by God. And that man backs off and delights. He enjoys the journey. He knows this in his heart. Not only are his steps established, and not only can he enjoy his life, but he knows this, that God is involved in what he's doing because he's involved in what God's doing in this world. Notice what he says here. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I think I mentioned two or three... Uh, a weeks ago, that's one of the favorite, my favorite verses. This is my favorite psalm. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down because the Lord upholds him. Doesn't mean he's not going to fall. I'll tell you, having uh, children is wonderful. Having grandchildren is a blast. I recommend it. It's a wonderful thing because I'm seeing all over again from a different perspective what it's like for children to grow up. You know, from the parental perspective, you are so much more involved. From the grandparent perspective, you just basically have one job, and that is to hold your grandchildren and to keep their parents from beating them to death. And, um, you know, you communicate that to your grandchildren periodically and let them know that. But it's such a neat deal, I mean, watching these grandchildren grow up because <clears throat> anything is possible. I mean, these are, the, these are the kids that will stand on the top of a uh, kitchen counter, and if you say jump, it never occurs to them not to jump because they know without a shadow of a doubt that just as surely as they do, you're going to catch them. Now, the tragedy is sometimes you're not around and they jump, you know, bang, and you hear about it. Boy, the scream's coming from the other. They're on one side of the room just barely learning how to walk, and they start walking, and to me it's like, you know, have you ever seen somebody start running down a hill and then down a cliff and they can't, you know, down the really steep hill and they can't stop. I mean, that's the way all my grandkids walk. They just run and they just, you know, I mean, they just get where they can. But it doesn't bother them. I mean, that's okay. They've got big plans, big places that they're going in their mind and it never occurs to them, the thought never occurs to them 
that there's going to be huge failure out there and they better not do this and they're not walking around timid and shy and refusing to, to risk something. You see, they got big plans because they are surrounded by security. And I'll tell you what, it, it is so enjoyable to me to immerse myself into the Word of God and to ask God day by day, how do you want me to live? And to try to order my steps according to His plan because I know that though the waters are choppy and I can't see them, that when I obey Him and I put my foot out, it will be just as firm as if it were dry land and I can walk through this journey and look back and say, man, that was fun. I didn't necessarily think it was fun when it was happening, but he, a man delights in his way. He looks back and says, look how God led me. Now, isn't that neat? I didn't know that was God. Look at this. I thought that was a problem. Look at that. That turned out to be a great, great joy and opportunity in my life, and I thought it was a big calamity. Look at this. And all of a sudden, you begin to delight in your way. Your confidence begins to build, and you say, look, I'm going to make big plans in my life. I may not do everything right, but even if I fall, I will not be utterly cast down because if I'm right with God, he's going to hold me up. And so you can make big plans. I mean, even when it looks like you don't have anything to plan with, you can make big plans for the future. So it affects your confidence about the future. And when I talk to people who are just always griping and bemoaning and afraid of the future and what's going to happen. And, oh, man, you know, this my marriage and my life and my future and my business and my country and all this. And they're just so worried. That's a little flag, a little flag that says, wait a minute, how much time are you spending in the Word of God? Because if you are strong in the faith, your steps are established, you can enjoy them because God is involved in what you're doing. And so it has something to do with your confidence in the future. Well, number four, it'll change your concern for your family. It will change your concern for your family. Um, I do a lot of family counseling. In January, the whole month of January, God willing, I'm going to be preaching a message, a series of messages entitled Strengthening the Knot in Your Family. And that's not N-O-T, not, not. It is K-N-O-T. There are a lot of people who feel like the knot in their family has come unraveled. And we're going to spend uh, an entire month thinking together about how to strengthen the knot that we've tied in our family, whether it's children or husband or wife, whatever it is. And we've got some wonderful things planned. In fact, the Sunday evening services, are, are, we're going to have a wonderful time in those Sunday evening services beginning in January as we think together about these great principles of God that we can apply in our family. But we do a lot of, of marriage counseling. And... Um, there are so many people who ask this question, what is the one thing? You know, everybody wants to know, what's the one thing that I ought to really focus in on? What's the one thing I ought to be doing? Because if I can just do the, do the one thing that's best for my family, uh, you know, everything else will, will just sort of fall in line. Brother Tom, what is, what is the one thing you can do for your family? Now, why do people ask a question like that? Because, you see, everybody thinks their thing is the one thing. You know, some of us sit down and say, well, I'll tell you the one thing you need to do. You need to make sure that you've done all your financial planning. 
Well, that's important. That is super important, but that's not the one thing. Somebody else says, well, I think the one thing is to make sure that, uh, that you spend quality time uh, with your family and that you can afford the things that will make them happy. Well, that might be something, but that's not the one thing. You fill in the blank. What do you, what do you think the one thing? You know what is the one thing that will change about a person's life when they come to know Jesus? They will see that the one thing they can do for their family that's more important than anything else is, for, is just to be right with God themselves. Just be right with God yourself. Now, you can't change every family member, but you can change you. And the one thing you can do that's more important than any other thing is for you alone, period, draw a circle around yourself if nobody else cares for you to be right with God. And you can scurry about. I've seen it happen over and over. People who just spent their lifetime amassing resources, for instance. They're going to take care of their family. And then they get out there and they're not even able to enjoy the life they can afford. And their family's all messed up. And, and they would rather not have any of that and have a family that was put together and centered on Christ than all that stuff that they've got and have those family members not caring about Jesus and living like the devil and a marriage is just about to bust up. What's the one thing? Be right with God yourself. You see, it will change. Your major concern for your family will be this. Is Christ center of my life? And am I praying that he will be the center of the life of my family members? Well, let's look at where he says this. Verse 25. He said, you know something? He said, I've been young. Now I'm old. He said, I, I'm going to tell you something that I have observed throughout the span of my life. I've observed this that I have never seen the righteous man forsaken. So if you don't want to be forsaken, be righteous. Nor his seed begging bread, his descendants, his children. The righteous man, I've never seen his seed begging bread. How do you ensure that your seed is not going to beg bread? You say, well, I need to amass this. No, no, no. How do you ensure that your seed will not be begging bread? You be righteous. You be right with God. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. As a matter of fact, here's how this man lives. He's merciful. He lends. His seed is blessed. So the obvious is obvious. Depart from evil, do good, dwell forevermore. The Lord loves judgment and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever. But what about the seed of the wicked? Those who reject him, the seed of the wicked will be cut off. But the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. What's the most important thing you could do for your family right now? I open up a book today. And um, it's a wonderful book. And in the book, the author was talking about um, her brother-in-law. And he died an untimely death. And she said, he did not have much time to put his house in order. And this was a book written by our own Charlita Garner, which I would encourage you to buy at our bookstore about their missionary journeys. But she's talking about her brother-in-law, who's also a missionary, who had an untimely death. He didn't have much time, did he, to put his house in order. Or he had to put it in order sooner than he expected. 
How could you? Did you realize this? Now, this is an amazing thing. Did you know that tonight before you leave, you can put your house in order as far, at least start? You say, what could I do? What would be the first step that I could take to put my house in order? Get right with God. If you've got any disagreement with God over any issue in the Scripture, resolve it tonight. God is right, you're wrong. Get right with God. Just agree with Him. Whether it's over finances, whether it's over the habits in your life, whether it's over what you watch, what you do, just get right with God. Agree with God. The best thing you can do for your family is to agree with God. Sometimes uh, uh, I'll be seated there in my office. There'll be a couple there, and they'll say, uh, uh, you know, we've come for counseling. And I'll say, well, great. Well, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Preacher, don't talk religion to us. We've got a marriage problem. Don't talk to us about the Lord. Tell us how we can solve the marriage problem. And I say to them, you have no hope of solving any problem in your life until, first of all, you solve the problem that you've got with God. The first thing you've got to do is get right with God. Why? Because if you get right with God, then God is going to begin to work within you and through you to bring a reconciliation of the other problems in your home. And so the major issue is getting right with God, being a righteous man. And so you see, not only do you conquer your fears and you have this new caution about your finances because you're going to give an account to God, you will have confidence in the future, but you'll have a new concern for your family. And what will that major concern be? That you be absolutely right with God first. And then that God, moving through you, begin to touch the hearts and the lives of your family members. It'll change your concern for your family. Let me mention one other thing. We're not going to finish. We'll finish this Wednesday evening. So let me, let me just mention one other thing, and we'll look at the rest of them later on. Here's something else that'll change when you get right with God. Your counsel with your friends. Your counsel, what you tell, how you talk with your friends will change. Notice, if you will, please, verse 30. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of judgment. That word judgment means the right principles of God that God will enforce. And so his mouth speaks wisdom, his tongue talks of judgment. Now, could I ask you a question? People who spend time with you, people with whom you discuss things, uh, maybe you have some friend, and you and that friend call and spend an unusual amount of time on the telephone every day or periodically. Or maybe you sit down in the coffee shop with that person, talk with them at coffee break. You've got somebody, someone, I would imagine, in your life with whom you discuss things. Uh, like Chuck Mungdinger was saying a while ago, you know, here 10 years ago, he didn't have any friends, now he had this group of 30 that was over at his house. I told Chuck when he walked by, I said, well, I thought I was one of your friends, but I wasn't one of those 30, so I've written you off. Um, so have a lot of us, right? I mean, we weren't. Were you invited? I wasn't I wasn't over there, so I feel sort of hurt about the whole thing. <laughs> Not really. But you've, you've got people with whom you talk. Now, let me ask you this question. When you're talking, what do you talk about? And how do you talk? 
Does your friend see in you a wealth of wisdom? Does your he friend hear from you the righteous pronouncements, the judgments, the righteous pronouncements of God? An issue arises. You say, well, I don't know what I do. I tell you what I do. I do this. I do. You ought to do that. You, or do you say, you know, here's what the Scripture says about that. Here's what God's Word says about that. Do your friends consider you to be a person whose words are filled with wisdom that comes from walking with God and who, when you talk, deliver the righteous, just pronouncements of God. J.R. Church is out here and uh, teaching this prophecy course. He's here tonight to teach it. And, and uh, my wife and I don't get to do this often, but on occasion we'll go out to eat with J.R. and Linda. And I always just sort of shake my head when we uh, uh, eat together because, you know, every man, I suppose most people anyway, to be really effective in their line of work have to be sort of lopsided. You know, I mean, just sort of a one-track mind. And, 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 and J.R. is like that in regard to what the Word of God says, especially in regard to Bible prophecy. Why do I like to go and visit with him? Because I know as we talk, I'm going to hear wisdom. I'm going to hear the righteous pronouncements of God. I could name a, a handful of others of you with whom I talk on a regular basis. Out here, many of you all with whom I talk on a regular basis, some of you, that, that hardly a week goes by that we don't sit down at a meal time together. And as we talk, what do we talk about? What does God say about this? What does the Word of God say? What are the principles of God as they apply here? Now, when Jesus comes into your life, He changes the way you talk. He changes the subject of your conversation. He changes the concern of your heart as you talk with other people so that you want to talk about those things that are on the heart of God. Has Jesus made that difference in your life? I visited with a, a man some time ago who said, who made this statement. He said, oh, he said, I don't like to be a crown Christian. Christians are all hypocrites. I thought this is interesting. This man's name this man's name is on our church roll. We didn't like to be with anybody the church because they're hypocrites. I want to say, why don't you just not be on church roll? But he said, I don't like to be around Christians. He said, my best friends are, are what you would call lost people. He said, oh, they're my best friends. I spend all of my time with them. I wonder what they talk about. Because you see, if out of his mouth comes the righteous judgment of God, those best friends either will find him very uncomfortable to be around or they will change their life, one or the other. So it has a decided effect on your language, on your conversation. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, his mouth, out of his mouth, the mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of judgment. Well, there's some other things that will change about your life. We'll look at them later on. But what have we already discovered? If you're truly one of God's people, God will show you how to conquer your fears. He'll give you a new concern for your finances. He'll give you a confidence for your future. He'll give you a new way of looking at your family. He'll give you 
a new way of counseling your friends. Now, these are differences that are made in your life and my life because we're going to heaven. And we see things in the light of their eternal perspective, not just in the light of what's happening today in our life, you see. And so your eternal destiny does affect your earthly behavior and mine, doesn't it? Let me ask you this question. Can you say that you know that your eternal destiny right now is heaven? If not, when we stand in a few moments, our praise singers come. They help us as we sing together a hymn of invitation. And this is your invitation to come to Jesus. I would encourage you to come find one of these counselors and say, look, I want to trust Jesus. Or I want to receive Jesus. And they'll talk with you quietly, give you some information that will help you to grow, pray with you. In a matter of minutes, you can leave this place knowing your life will never be the same. You've been born in the family of God, and he will begin by his grace to bring about differences in your life in regard to your money, in regard to your family, in regard to your friends, in regard to your conversation, in regard to your plans for the future. He'll begin to bring about changes in your life where you need changing, and he'll do it. He will do it. And so I would urge you, if you cannot say, I know that my eternal destination is heaven, if you can't settle that, can't say that, then come tell one of these counselors, look, I want to settle that tonight. I want to settle that tonight. I believe there are people here to whom the Lord is speaking about becoming a part of our church family, and I want to urge you, I want to invite you to make that decision tonight. I can't make it for you. If I could, I would. But I can't make that decision for you, but I want to urge you to make that decision tonight. Don't put it off. We have this tendency to, to put things off. We live in a generation where people don't like to make a commitment. They're afraid, well, I just don't... Listen... The Christian life involves being convicted and committed to the principles of God. Because, you see, he has committed himself to you. And so I would urge you to come and become a part of this church family as a family, as an individual. You may be here by yourself. Make this your church home. You may be here as a, as a family, young old. I would urge you to come and make that decision. It could be there's some area of your life in which there's a struggle. You want people to pray with you about it. I would urge you to come to this altar and kneeling here. You may want to ask a counselor, look, pray with me. Maybe a matter in your home or in your heart. And ask these people to pray with you at this altar. If you have made a decision in an earlier service and we've not introduced you to your church family, I'm going to ask you to come and just be seated over there where it says seating for new members. These who are baptized tonight will do that. Others of you who joined our church will want to do that this evening. If you've not done that already, I would urge you to make that decision. This is your invitation time your moment to say yes to Christ. So while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let's stand together. We're going to pray. When I say amen, we're going to begin singing. As we begin singing, I would urge you just to make your way forward right down the aisle. Some of you are way back at the back, some right here close to the front. Just step out of the aisle, make your way forward. The moment we begin singing, this is your invitation time to say yes to Christ. Father in heaven, bowing now before you, we acknowledge this wonderful truth, and that is that when Jesus comes into our heart, he makes a difference in our lives. Old things pass away. Behold, you have said all things become new. We need that kind of difference. And so, Lord, I pray you would bring to this altar tonight those who hunger and thirst for that difference in their life, those who want to have that kind of, of concern for family and confidence in planning the future, and those who want to to have this change in the way they, 
They counsel with their friends and their whole way of looking at everything. Lord, bring to this altar those who need to be different. And Lord, those who are hurting and sorrowing, those who need your encouragement, bring to this altar. Those who would be a part of this church family, bring to this altar, Lord, to say yes to you tonight. And I pray it in Jesus' wonderful and matchless and saving name. Amen. As we begin singing, won't you just make your way to the aisle, make your way forward. I'm saying yes to Jesus.